So what I'm going to share with you tonight, I'm going to talk about four last and lasting words. And um, I just want to use Hebrews 4.12 just to just kind of introduce this message tonight, because obviously we're going to be, be looking at the passion of Jesus. But four last and lasting words, and um, they are four of Jesus' last words, and they should be words that last in our lives forever. So in Hebrews chapter 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So what we'll look at tonight is the word of God. And we're going to look at, again, four last and then lasting words of Jesus that should live in our hearts and our minds, and ultimately that will last for all eternity. They are words that should have a massive influence over us. They should compel us, motivate us, inspire us, strengthen us, empower us. They're words that should bring us peace. They should bring us joy. And um, they should fill us with energy. They're words that should transform us and change us and renew us. Words are powerful. Words are incredibly powerful. And the counseling people through the years, somebody who, whose parents or maybe their father said very bad things to them, told them that they would never amount to anything, criticized them, and how that had such a tremendous influence over their life. Um, they say that many of the people who end up in prison were told repeatedly by their parents that they would end up in prison. Really kind of crazy. So I was watching, uh, if, you, if you like documentaries, there's a, a, a three-part documentary, if you have Amazon, on the SAS. The SAS is the Special Forces of Great Britain. And um, tremendous, it really is a tremendous work. Three, you know, three hours, three separate hours. But the founder of the SAS, who was an incredible, incredible war hero, and really was so influential in turning the tide of World War II in Northern Africa, if you know anything about the campaign with uh, the German General Rommel, and Patton gets a lot of credit for it, but the British SAS did a whole lot just to slow down the Germans from taking over Egypt. They, they would have just taken over all of Africa and Asia. And the, the founder of the SAS, was, his father would say to him, Make your life great. Just, just make your life great. And he repeated that to his son. And they, then as an adult, he remembered that. Make your life great. And he became this great military leader, this great, really, freedom fighter against the Nazis. And um, that's, again, the power, the power of, of words. I say this to you, parents. Speak words of empowerment over your children and your grandchildren. I want to speak those words over their life. So when we come to the, you know, the different texts that I'm going to look at tonight, there are four words that Jesus spoke, and he speaks them into our lives. The first is uh, a word at the Last Supper, and it is a word of challenge. And it's a word of challenge to us, as it was to the 11 disciples that had the Last Supper. Judas had left to betray him. 
And then the, the second will be a word from Gethsemane, which is a word of his surrender, which should compel us to surrender our lives to him. The third is, is a word of supremacy that he speaks when they came to arrest him as he was just you know, leaving Gethsemane. And then the fourth is a, a word of victory. It's a word of success. And it, it is a word that he calls us to enter into. So the first, the, first, the word of service. And um, so I actually believe that this is the last word of the Last Supper. The last word of the Last Supper. And people will say, well, then there's um, John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. Sometimes Hebrew writers would put certain events that were happening before things. You see that, you see that consistently. And I, think, I, think that, I see that I believe John did that. So I, whether, it, whether it was or whether it's not, that's kind of just my, my thought and my studies. But the last word of the Last Supper, and again, it is a word of calling to serve. And... Um, it's a word again that should be living in our hearts now and forever. Now, I'm a father, but do you know that when I go to be with the Lord, I won't be a father anymore? There'll only be one father. I'm a husband, and when I go to be with the Lord, I'm not going to be a husband anymore. I'm a pastor. Guess what? I'm not going to be a pastor when I go to heaven. But there's one thing that I am now that I will be forever and ever. 10,000 years from now, 100,000 years from now, a zillion years from now, I will still be a servant of the Lord. And so will you. He, he calls us to be servants now and forever and ever. So, so watch. In John 13, Jesus, at the end of the supper, he does this, this very, it's a peculiar thing. Catches all the disciples off guard. And he gets up, he takes off his outer garment, he, st he still has his inner garment on. He wraps a towel around his waist, he takes a water basin and a towel, and he goes and begins to wash the disciples' feet. So he comes to Peter, and Peter says to him, Lord, <laughs> you're not washing my feet. And Jesus says to him, unless I wash your feet, Okay, you have no part with me. So Peter says, then wash all of me. Give me, I mean, give me a bath. Put me in the shower. Wash me from head to toes. And Jesus says to him, he who has had a bath does not need another bath. They just need to have their feet washed. What was he saying there? Essentially what he would do on the cross, and essentially it, it, it's applied to Peter before he even did it. Peter was bathed. He was washed. He was forgiven. But yet he still needed to have his feet washed. The continuous relationship and confessing to the Lord. We need to be washed. Because what happens? Our sins separate us. They can create blocks between us and God. Even though we're forgiven. And you know this is true. If you go on sinning and you do not repent and confess, you know that there's this distance that happens in your relationship with the Lord. And that's why there needs to be that, that ongoing confession. That's why we continue to confess our sins. So we need to have our feet washed. Now, after that, in John chapter 13, 12 through 17, let me read it to you. So when he had washed their feet, 
taken his garments and sat down again. And by the way, it's, it's a beautiful picture of what he was going to do just later, right, uh, on Good Friday. He would, um, he would lay down his life, then he would put on his garments again. <laughs> and, um, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father, right, 50 days later. And he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If then your Lord and your teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If you're a Christian, you have been recruited and called into the foot washing business. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So there is the, the challenge. We are to be foot washers. We are to be servants of the Lord, serving him and serving one another. Now, let me, this, I want to share just a couple of thoughts with this with you. Foot washing, it's about going down. It, it, it's, it, it, you have to be humble to do this. To be a servant, it, it involves humility. You've got to dump your ego, your pride. Some, some people are just too big to do this. Some people are too big to be used by God. Let me tell you, I've seen many of them come in and out of these doors through the, uh, through the years and through the decades. They're just too big to be used by Jesus. So here is this, this really amazing calling to be a servant, to go low. Beauty of it is when you go low, what does he do? He lifts you on high. When you go on high, you know what he does? He makes you go low. To go up, you must go down. If you're down tonight, then you're already up. But if you're up, I promise you, he will be trying to bring you down. To be great, you have to become a servant. If you just seek to be great, you know what? You will not be great, at least in the economy of the kingdom of God. So it's, it's about going down. Another thing, it's about getting dirty. The, these, <laughs> these men whose feet he's washing, this, this is what their feet look like. They, they didn't have paved roads. They didn't have fancy Converse sneakers like you have on tonight. Their feet were, were dirty. They were filthy. Folks, they were stinky. And to be a servant, you've got to get dirty. You're going to wash feet like that, your hands are going to get dirty. You're going to get dirt on your knees. You're going to get dirt underneath your fingernails. Look, folks, see this nice building? Look around. Look around at it. I don't know how many of you were here when we built this building, a handful of you. Gloria. Not Gloria and Lenny. Right. Did we get dirty? Oh. <laughs> taking sledgehammers and taking out walls. This place was an old, dirty machine shop. There was, when I came in here, I had a brand new pair of sneakers on and I destroyed them walking because there was a huge half of inch of grime and grease that was on the ground. 
But we, we, hey, Gloria, right? How dirty were you on Saturday afternoons when you went home at five or six at night? We got dirty. And serving God means at times we're going to get dirty. Some people, right, they just don't like to get dirty. But to be a servant, you have to get dirty. There was a, there was a, a man, we hired him as a pastor here. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. He lasted two weeks. And on the first day, we had to, uh, he and I, we had to go and set up chairs for the Wednesday night Bible study upstairs at the time. And then uh, we had to clean the bathrooms. And he looked at me and he said, I didn't come here to set up chairs or to clean bathrooms. I just want to say, I didn't have to. God released him. Sometimes just God does that. He just released him. And you know what's interesting? This guy, he was going to Bible college. He was you know, prepared. He finished. He never got hired by a church. Never. He, he, spent his, he spent his entire... He never got hired as a senior pastor and never got hired as an associate pastor. And I, I believe the main, the main reason is he just was unwilling to get down and get dirty. Because when you are serving a God, he, he's going to call you to do things that are menial. They're menial at times. A third is, it's about being a doulos. You want to learn that word doulos. It's important because almost every letter in the New Testament, okay, all the epistles, begin by saying, Peter, a doulos. By the way, his second letter, he didn't do it in the first. He said in the first letter, I'm an apostle. The second letter, he said, I'm an apostle and a doulos. Paul's a doulos, right? Judah's a doulos. James is a doulos. John's a doulos. He is a servant. And what is essentially here, let me... Go back. What is a doulos? Essentially, in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, a person couldn't pay their debt, and then they would become an indentured servant. When you look at slavery, if you're looking through the book, we talk, cover this in Exodus and Leviticus, uh, they, were, they were essentially became servants or slaves to the master until they could pay off their debt. At the end of seven years, okay, year of Jubilee, they would be set free. Now, here's this servant, and he's got a master, and this master is really good. He's really loving. He really cares for him. He's not, he's not a, a mean master. And uh, he says to him, you know, you're, you're such a wonderful servant. Here, I'm going to give you a house. And here, I'm going to give you livestock. And I'm going to give you agriculture. Here, you're going to own a bunch of acres. And he marries a woman, and he has kids. And he has this wonderful life serving this master who he loves. And at the end of seven years... The master says, you're free. You're free. And he says, master, I love you. You've been so good to me. You've been better to me than anybody has ever been. Look at the blessing I have, the possessions, the property, the agriculture, right? The animals, everything that you've given me. I've got wife and children. I don't want to leave. I want to serve you for the rest of my life. And this, this is what it tells us in Exodus 21, 5 and 6. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door of the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl, and then he will be his servant for life. That's a doulos. Lord, you died for me. Lord, you gave me your life. You totally forgave me of, of every nasty, filthy thing that I have ever done, that I have ever thought. Lord, you, you filled me with your spirit. You have given me peace. You have given me hope. 
I want to be your servant for the rest of my life. I want to be your servant for the rest of eternity. That's doulos. That is doulos. And then one other thing here. It's about entering into makarios. Remember makarios? Where was makarios from back in January? Makarios are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, right? Blessed. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Makarios. And being a servant is about entering into the makarios. Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Makarios, the supernatural blessing of God that comes when we wash dirty feet. It comes when we get down and get dirty. It comes when we are... are being doulos. I've had some great days in my life. I was thinking about this. I'm not going to tell you what they were. I've had some, some great athletic days in my life. I've had some great earning days in my life. I've had some great victories in my life. Great family days, marriage days. Oh, marriage day. Only one. I'm not going to tell you, not to be a brag. One time I mentioned about a special day I had, and Lenny came to me and said, never tell people about that. Do you remember that? Yeah, I was thinking of you today. I said, don't, don't ever tell people. Don't tell people. But I've had some great days. But I want to tell you something. The, the feeling and emotion that comes when you have washed somebody's feet, we've maybe led someone to Christ, You've gone up in the hospital and you've spent some time with somebody and you've talked with them and you've prayed with them. You've helped somebody who's going through a trying time. Just imagine sometimes picking up the phone and just calling somebody and just encouraging them. Just do, doing these, these simple things. How it brings this feeling and it's, it's a very unique feeling. You know, I tell people, you know, you're feeling down, just call up somebody and just encourage them. You're feeling bad. Life ain't going so good. Maybe you had some problems. Just call up somebody and just, just encourage them. Build them up. And see what happens. How you, that, that's Mercurios. When we minister to people and we serve them, you share the word with them, pray for them, visit them, you call them and you give them an encouraging word, you give to them, that's Mercurios. And Macarius, again, it, it, it's just this, it's this blessing. It's the doulos. It's what comes when we get a little dirty. It's what comes when we go down and we humble ourselves to lift another up. So Jesus says, go and do what I have done, and you'll be blessed. You will be blessed. I said, one of my favorite stories, probably considered one of the, one of the great American psychologists, they asked him at a lecture, somebody said, what do you need to do to be happy? And um, they said, call, call, so call Menninger, the psychologist. And they were expecting he was going to give this, this elaborate you know, teaching on you know, cognitive psychology or gestalt. Or, and he said, go out the door, go out to the street, go down the road, 
cross over the railroad tracks, and the first person you see in need, help them. That's Makarios. That's Makarios. All right, number two, second word. The word of surrender. So people ask me, what do you think is the most important verse in the Bible? I think it's this verse. This is my number one. Okay? This is my number one verse. That I think of all the verses in the Bible, 33,130, something like that. This, I believe, is the to me, the most important verse in the entire Bible. It comes from Gethsemane. The olive press. They put the olives in that stone press and they roll a stone on it and it crushes the olives and the olive oil comes flowing out. They fill up their bowls with it. And Jesus went into Gethsemane and he was being crushed to the point that he even began to bleed right from his forehead. So he went a little farther. This is from the four who he brought in. And he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but to take the cup. I think that's the most important verse in the Bible. Because if he, if he chose not to pray that and then follow through, folks, we all is going to hell <laughs> if we wouldn't be there already. So let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you. What was in the cup? The Father, the father is holding out a, a cup I want to say this to you. I believe Jesus feared what was in the cup. People say, Jesus never feared anything. Hey, look, man, you want to, I, I know that. I know, I know Jesus was the most courageous person who ever walked the earth. I had a one time teaching on this 28 years ago. And uh, a brother was here in the church and he said, you're wrong, Jesus never feared anything. And I said, well, I quoted from 1 John, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with what? Punishment. Fear has to do with condemnation. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. What was inside the cup that Jesus feared? Condemnation, judgment, the wrath of God, punishment. Inside, inside of the cup was the wrath of God against sin. Inside of the cup was, was essentially hell. The, the fire, the suffering, the darkness of hell. That's what Jesus was facing on the cross. I think, you know, we, we many times on a, on a Good Friday at different times... I think there's a, a lot of focus on the physical suffering of Jesus. And it was great physical suffering. They, they, I mean, they pummeled him. The temple guard, the Roman soldiers, even the priests were smashing him in the face. It was beaten and struck repeatedly. We are told they ripped his beard from his face. Isaiah. 
they, they repeatedly hit him with these staffs, the Roman soldiers. They scourged him, and if you, you know, when you watch the movie The Passion, you get a picture of how horrible the scourging was, but they, they had, it was, essentially it was a whip, and it was made out of leather, and there were sharp pieces of steel at the end. It would shred the skin off of the back and the sides because it would wrap around. And sometimes it even stripped the muscles off and people could see the organs of the people who were scourged. And then they put a, a crown of thorns on his head. And again, it's not like the little thorns that we have here. There's a great picture right here, this great little illustration that I brought back from Israel. You've got thorns there that are, that are an inch and a half, two inches, two and a half inches thick. And then he carried his cross in a condition where he had lost a whole lot of blood. And that's why he, he, kept, he kept falling and they got, they got Simon to be able to, Simon the Cyrene, to be able to carry the cross with him. And then they nailed him to the cross. And he hung there six hours. If you understand again, crucifixion is death by suffocation. And people sometimes don't, don't get this. They think it's death by the bleeding of the hands. The, the, the hands, you know, essentially through the upper part of the hand, the person could hang on the cross. Some, some people hung on the cross for days before they died. Like Andrew, Peter's brother in Turkey, he hung on the cross for four days. He was preaching to them. But um, essentially what, what would happen is they would put a piece of wood underneath the feet which then would enable the person on the cross to push up. And when they were able to push up, they were able to breathe. And then they would lower themselves down, have a hard time breathing again, then push themselves up again. And so when they could no longer push themselves up because of weakness, then they would suffocate and they would die. So it was, it was death, death by suffocation. It's horrible, horrible. I mean, it's, I mean, straight out of the, the, the crucifixion, straight out of the pit of hell that you know, people would do this to another human being. But his physical suffering, his emotional suffering, cannot compare with his spiritual suffering. And so on the cross, in Matthew 27, 46... And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So again, as bad as the physical and the emotional pain, here's the cup. The cup is, is the spiritual pain. It's separation. Jesus is separated from the Father. Again, we, we try to wrap our minds around this. He's God. God cannot be separated from God. But yet in his humanity, he was separated from his Father. That never happened before. So he's experiencing hell. Because hell is separation. Hell is total separation from God. So the darkness that comes over, that comes over the earth at that time, it's almost like the Father, it's like he couldn't look at Jesus and turned his head away from him. Why? Because Jesus took upon all the sins of the world upon himself. And look what it says, he became sin. So in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, to be sin for us. Right? He took all of our sin upon himself and then he gave all of his righteousness to us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But he became sin for us. He, he breathed in our sin. He, he soaked it up 
and he allowed it to consume him outwardly as well as inwardly. Why? Because he loves us. Because he knows that if he does not become sin for us, if he does not let sin consume him, it will destroy and consume us. So he became sin who knew no sin. I want you to to, to stop and think of this. We experience the guilt at times of sin. We experience the shame of sin. Sometimes we experience the horror of sin. We have a sinful nature. We're kind of used to it though, right? Right? We got this sin, we got this sinful nature. We get we, we're more acquainted with it. I don't I don't think it quite even, even the holiest person here tonight, it doesn't quite bother you as it would God, as it would Jesus. Right, so we feel we may feel some shame, but he's here. He had never experienced sin. He had never experienced the shame of sin or the guilt of sin. He, he's just perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. He's, he's the act, exact opposite of sin. And yet now sin has been literally placed in him and upon him, and he actually becomes sin for the entire world. And if you stop, you start to think about it. It's it's horrifying. It's horrifying. You see, a little child who is led and has been in a a beautiful home with beautiful parents, and um, they they have not experienced trauma. They haven't. And they experienced something horrible. You see, some of the children that you see coming out of the Ukraine and what they have seen, that a little child should never see. And how horrible that is. Well, just again, multiply that a trillion times in what Jesus is experiencing. It's, it's horrifying. So when, when you, you understand, when Jesus prays in Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but yours be done, he's surrendering to the will of God, to the will of his Father, to take that cup and its hell upon himself. All right, number three. The word of supremacy. So in in, in verse 3 through 6 in the Gospel of John, it says, Then Judas, having received a a detachment of troops, by the way, that's like 600 troops. These are temple temple troops now, not Romans yet. And officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. You know, lanterns, torches, and weapons. Passover time, full moon, Right? Lots of light. They think they're going to find him hiding in the ground like Saddam Hussein when the special forces found him, right? He ain't hiding. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. He knocked them over. He knocked them on their butts. A whole bunch of them, a whole slew of them. Soldiers, priests, Judas, the whole, you know, the whole gang. And they dropped. At what? At his supremacy. At his majesty. <laughs> this is him. I am. 
Do you understand what he's saying? I am he. This is, this is in John chapter 8.58, Exodus 3.14, right? Moses talking to God. Who are, what, what, what's your name? What does God say? I am. Yahweh. In, in John, Jesus repeats that in John 8.58. Right here it is in, in the Hebrew in Exodus 3.14. I am that I am. The word God in Hebrew, Yahweh in Hebrew language, it, it's ayacha and ayacha. And that is what you, I am. And they, again, they, 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 fell, they fell back. The word of God says that every knee shall bow. Even the evil knees. Look, in Romans 8, uh, 14, 11 through 12, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God so that each of us shall give account of himself to God. Every knee shall bow. Not just, not just, hey, man, I have no problem bowing before the Lord. I don't bow before anybody else. Oh, you can take me out. But uh, it's very easy for me to fall on my face before the Lord. I'm not embarrassed. I'll do it, do it right here in front of you. I don't do it to show it off. But if God calls me to lay down my life right before him, I'll do that. But so will the evil. Cain will bow down before the Lord. Pharaoh will bow down before the Lord. Judas will bow down before the Lord. The Herods will bow down before the Lord. Nero will bow down before the Lord. Hitler will bow down before the Lord. Stalin will bow down before the Lord. Mao Zedong will bow down before the Lord. Every, uh, hey, Putin will bow down before the Lord. Every atheist, every agnostic, every Satanist, every God-hater, every unbeliever, they all will bow down before the Lord. Every knee will bow because he's king of kings, because he's supreme. So then, maybe you stop and you say, well, they, they fell over, but they still arrested him, right? They still arrested him. I mean, they, they, were, they were confounded, they were confronted, um, they were confused. Why? Why was he still arrested? Look, look at, I'm going I'm to read this. You see this, I'm, I've been, just as your help, many of you have been going through day by day with what I shared with you on Sunday, just meditating on the days of Jesus, I, I have been going through, but I'm using all four Gospels as I'm doing that. And um, I, you keep seeing this repeated over and over again. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be a, accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit on, and they will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. I just want you to notice... Uh, key thing, it, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man. He had to fulfill the writings of Tanakh. He had to fulfill the writings of Moses. He had to fulfill the writings of the Psalms. And he had to fulfill the writings of the prophets. He had to fulfill over 300 prophecies he had to fulfill. And he says that over and over and over again. So again, he, he knocks them on his, their butts with his supremacy. They are confounded, they are confused, they are convoluted. I, I, I don't know if that word fits in, but I thought I'd throw it in there. And they still arrest him. They still abuse him. They still accuse him. And they still crucify him. But yet he is totally supreme. And he fulfills scripture. The last word here 
is the word of success. In John 19, verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I want you to notice, he said, it is finished. He did not say, I am finished. <laughs> it, it, it. Take, make, make, you want to you circle that word in your Bible. It is finished. Not, not I. You got to remove the T. His mission, his objective, his purpose, right? His mission accomplished. That's what was finished. He came to die for you and for me. He came to pay for our sins on the cross. He came to be that atoning sacrifice for all who would put their faith in him. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace, he died to give us peace with God, was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed, we are, we are healed, we are forgiven, we, 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 are, we are made well by his death. He came to die for us, to lay down his life and give us forgiveness. In John chapter 10, verse 17, remember this. He said, it is finished, and he yielded up his spirit. He yielded up his spirit. In John 10, 17, it says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down for myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. He laid down his life. When it came time, right? It was time now. He gave up his spirit. It wasn't, wasn't somebody taking it from He gave us up his spirit. Who crucified Jesus? Did Pilate crucify Jesus? Did the Romans crucify Jesus? Maybe, maybe it was the soldiers who crucified Jesus. The priests crucified Jesus. Who crucified Jesus? Now, you're going to be all spiritual with me now, right? You can do this, right? We can go, well, I crucified Jesus. Yeah, I had my hand in it too. It was my sins. But who crucified Jesus? God! The Father, Son, and Spirit! Crucified Jesus. He gave himself. And, and at any time, right? But Peter, Peter takes out the sword and starts... starts I mean, fishermen should not be given swords, right? I mean, he swings the thing. I think, oh, sure, he was going for the servant Malchus's head. He just caught an ear, right? And Jesus healed him. What did Jesus say? Put your sword away. I haven't come here to lead a rebellion. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And he says, at any, at any time I could call, how many legions? Twelve legions of angels. And what a legion is, I'm going to give you a little Roman history. It's somewhere between three and 7,000. So somewhere between 36,000 and, what is it, 36,000, and it's, I think it's 80, is it 80, you're going to do the math. Land, you can do the math. 89,000, 82,000, something like that. He could have called, <laughs> could you imagine that? Right? One angel in the Old Testament took out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a moment. Could you imagine 12 legions of angels, right? 84,000, okay? Or between 36,000 and 84,000 suddenly being released 
at any time. But that's not what he came to do. He came to be the sacrificial lamb. That sacrificial lamb that's told all the way from the beginning in Genesis 3, right through the entire Old Testament, the sacrificial lamb. And you know what? He came as the sacrificial lamb, but he also came as the high priest and he offered up the sacrifice, offered up himself as the high priest, the sacrificial lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. So when he says it is finished, mission is accomplished. He's not finished, folks, right? <laughs> He's here with us. He'll be with us forever. But thank God that he finished his mission. So I'll give you, I'll give you a, a quick, simple application, the four last words, right? The four last and lasting words. And I just want to say lasting, lasting. Right? He, he comes and he demonstrates, I mean, he would wash our feet, but he challenges us and calls us to be foot washers and servants of him. And I get people, they come to the church and they say, I'm going to volunteer. You don't volunteer in the church. Now, if you've heard me say this, go join the United Way and volunteer. Go to the Elks Club and volunteer. You don't volunteer in the church. You be a servant. You become a minister. I don't volunteer. I'm a servant. I'm a minister of the Lord. And he calls us. He calls us to that. He gives us the example. He surrenders to the will of the Father, going to the cross and dying for us. And that's what he asks us to do, to surrender to him. I say this to you again. What is the Christian life? You, can, you get all kinds of definitions of what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a surrender to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. It's a surrender to Him for what He did for you on the cross, dying for you there and being raised from the dead and being a living Savior in your life. If you have surrendered, if you have surrendered to Jesus, you're a Christian. If you have not surrendered to Jesus, you are not a Christian. I don't know. You could be doing all kinds of religious gymnastics. You can be coming into churches and standing and sitting. and, and you, know, you could be running around the churches and swinging from the chandeliers. But if you have not surrendered to Jesus, you're not a Christian. That's what faith is. Faith is a surrender. It's a surrender to him. He demonstrates his supremacy. And he is supreme over all. He is the king of kings. And that should bring us to a place where we bow our knees to him daily, joyfully. And his word, it is finished, is a word of success. He paid the price on the cross. And he succeeded in what he came to do. To give us success. I'm not talking about the, the, the temporary. I mean, it's, it's fine if you, you know, you, you're succeeding in this world is fine. Nothing wrong with it. But it's to succeed eternally. How about having eternal success as a child of God, as a son and daughter of God, and going to heaven and being with him forever? That. That is the ultimate success because you can gain the whole world and not have that and lose your soul. So I, I just say to you, servant, surrender, supremacy, success. Poor words. Let them live in your heart. 
Let them live in your heart every day. Let them live in your heart for all eternity. Receive them today. They're simple, right? They're simple words. Not hard, not hard to remember. And I'll say this, if Jesus is not the Lord and Savior of your life, tonight could be the night of your salvation. Open your heart to Jesus and invite him in. He surrendered for you, surrender to him tonight. Bow your life before him and profess to him that he is your Lord and Savior. Thank him that he died on the cross for you and receive the gift of eternal life into your heart. Ain't nothing better than that. Ain't nothing better, I'll tell you that. Let's just bow our heads and pray. The musicians can make their way up and we're going to have communion in just a moment. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. And we thank you, Lord God, for your son who went, Lord so willingly to such a horrible place. It, it's, it's an ugly place, Lord God, but it's a beautiful place. We call it good on Friday because it was really good for us. And it was good, Lord, that you came and you accomplished your mission and gave yourself from us. Lord, live in our hearts. Somebody tonight, Lord God, just opening their heart to you and praying to take you in right now, Lord God, live in our hearts, Jesus. Be the leader of our life and the forgiver of our sins. And be glorified in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, grab your cup. You can stand with me. You can take your matzah out of the uh, container. Lord, it's a privilege and honor always to come before you and share in the Lord's Supper. For on that night, the Lord Jesus, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said to them, take this, all of you, and eat this. He said, this is my body. He said, it's broken for you. It was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And let us all partake. And then the Lord, he took the bread, not took the cup, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said to them, Take this, all of you, and drink this, for this is my blood the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And in remembrance, Lord, of your blood, precious and immaculate, the blood that washes away our sins. Lord, in remembrance of your blood that was shed for us on the cross, we partake tonight and we give thanks to you, Lord God, for the precious gift. Let us all partake. As our worship team leads us in song, we will open the altars if you'd like to come up and join near to God. If you pray to take the Lord Jesus into your heart tonight, Pastor Sam Medina, one-armed Sam, we call him. We welcome you to come up and talk with him. He has a Bible for you if this was the beginning of a new life with Jesus. Sam's one arm is stronger than 
two of most of ours. So. Thank you, Pastor Frank. As Pastor said, the altars are open if you'd like to come here and spend a little time with the Lord. Please don't leave tonight without considering, if you have not, asking the Lord to come into your heart. The work is finished. Make that exchange of your sin for his righteousness. There's a place where
tonight remember that um, you know on that Friday Jesus bled and he suffered and he died and they put him in a tomb on that Friday but remember remember Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. that's right remember it's Friday but Sunday's coming let's hear him say that it's Friday but Sunday's coming God bless you all